Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Brandon Adams once said, aim higher, stay focused. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Julie, sitting in for Jonathan, who could not be with us today. But this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. And once again, uh, Jonathan was not able to be with us today. He, We expect him back next week. So, Julie, thank you for sitting in. Wonderful. I'm really excited about this program because it's 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 a part two of something we did a few weeks back, but it's amazing. All right. So, folks, we do thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, uh, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Julie, what's the topic that you're all excited about? It is, is this the moment you were created for? And it's based on the following text in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Okay, so once again, is this the moment you were created for? And this is part two. So, the story of Esther. Sometimes we are called to destiny. Queen Esther of the Old Testament showed us what can happen when circumstances open the door for uncharacteristic heroism. Several weeks ago, as Julie said, we told you the story of the Book of Esther, how a Jewish teenage girl kept her calm and found a way to save her people at great personal risk. She worked within the constraints of her ancient society to rise up to the highest level available, all the while remaining focused and humble. Her story has inspired people for centuries and left scholars to dissect its literary construction and contemporary significance. So coming up in today's podcast, folks, did you ever think about this? Did you ever picture the debates that you have in your own mind as the classic angel on one shoulder and devil on the other? You know how the devil in those pictures usually cheats? Well, what if we told you there's a biblical account that almost mirrors that imagery? And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. In segment two, we're going to open up the real life story of Esther because we're um, what we're, we're going to elevate its characters to play parts of the personal internal struggle that we as Christians actually go through. Does it sound weird? Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> does it make a profound point? You just wait. Absolutely does. And finally, we all have drama in our lives, and we all tend to make it even more difficult based on the stories and conclusions that swim around in our heads, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Esther's story addresses this dilemma. And in segments three through five, we're going to discover how to reset the process so we can plow through our own issues. And Rick, as with much of the Bible, there are layers of lessons to explore, and Esther is no exception. So Esther's story can be seen as a parallel to the walk of a Christian in thought-provoking and unique ways. What do Esther's experiences teach us about our faith and our choices? Well, Julie, that's why you're here. And yeah. folks, for those of you who, who don't know, Julie, just, just give us a quick, quick description of who you are for those of uh, our audience who may not know you. 
Well, I've been a volunteer with Christian Questions since 2010, and I'm responsible for a lot of the website things that you see and uh, the CQ Rewind show notes every week where we transcribe everything that happened on the podcast, and a lot of people use that for Bible study. Uh, and just an all around anything that needs help with our social media, CQ podcast, CQ Bible podcast, excuse me, on all our social media channels and uh, whatever, whatever helps advance the cause. Yeah. And you do Facebook Live with me, don't you? I do. I do. <laughs> all right. So tell us about this podcast, Julie, and, and, and some of, the, some of the, the, the introduction, if you will. Well, this podcast is largely based on a work of a Bible scholar named Carl Hagenseck. And uh, he's no longer with us, but he was just an amazing student. And his insights opened the door for us to analyze the book of Esther on a much deeper level by overlaying the path of our individual Christian walk onto the story. And so we recommend first listening to part one of this podcast. And it was episode number 1057. You can go to ChristianQuestions.com, just search 1057. It'll bring it up. And there we walk through the book of Esther in its entirety to find many modern life lessons. But boy, once we saw uh, Carl's work, there was just so much more to that story that we wanted to bring to you. And I'm, I'm grateful that you decided to do part two. Well, so, well, you know what? Once you described what, what, what Carl had done, it's like, well, you have to talk about this because it's such a unique perspective. Go ahead. Right. So, okay. So what we're going to do today is picture the story of Esther as a stage play on two stages that will go on simultaneously. Now for the first stage, that's the story stage. We're going to go ahead and introduce you to the cast of characters that are involved in that play. Uh, we're going to start with Ahasuerus. He's the king of Persia. If you remember from part one, we have Mordecai, one of his trusted advisors. There's Esther, who was the second queen of Persia. Haman, ooh, he's the villain, <laughs> another trusted advisor. And Vashti, she was the first queen of Persia. So really you have these five main characters. So that's the actual story of Esther. So we're going we're gonna to touch on the actual story of Esther, but playing simultaneously on the other stage, there is really only one actor. And folks, that is you in your Christian life. Yes, you are here a star. Okay, we're going to divide you into various roles as well. And so this will be your personal stage. So we're going to go from the story stage, the story of Esther, and then we're going to move to your personal stage and take the lessons from the story stage and apply them to you. So on this second stage, your personal stage, Julie, we've got the role of Ahasuerus. What role does he, the king, play? So in, in your story, this is your mind. So when we talk about Ahasuerus, we're going to be talking about it as if your mind, your decision-making. Okay, so your decision-making as a real, live human being, imperfect, living in the world, and trying to be faithful to God through Christ. Your mind. So the role of Ahasuerus, the king, is your mind. What about Mordecai? This is the, the relative of, of Queen Esther. What role does he play? Mordecai was the trusted advisor of Ahasuerus the king, and so Mordecai is going to be played by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is God's power and God's influence. So Mordecai, we find, is in 
Queen Esther's ear throughout the story and is, is, is trusted because he's always speaking godly things. And so we want to take that picture and say that represents the power and influence of God in our lives. So Ahasuerus is the king, your mind. Mordecai plays the part of God's power and influence in our lives. What about Esther herself? What, what role does she play? Well, for Esther, I'd like to bring up a quick scripture. We got Esther from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, and this was our theme scripture, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. So Esther is going to be played by your new creature. Okay, the new creature, the, the new mind that has been uh, regenerated or generated in us by the power of God's influence working and that new spiritual life that's what esther represents all right you said haman boo Boo. (laughs) okay what does haman represent in on your personal stage haman is your flesh your fleshly desires your fleshly influences the things you're not really supposed to be doing okay so haman is all of who i am in my sinful state, and we'll we'll see how that develops. And then Vashti, who doesn't actually doesn't play a whole lot of role here for very long. What role does she play? She plays your old creature. So she that's kind of a formal position between old and new creature. You kind of it's where you start out. You're starting out as your regular old person. Okay, and so you're developing into a new creature. All right, so your old mind versus your new mind. That's and, then, right. and then again, Haman is your flesh, your earthly desires and, 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 and passions and, and, and directions and so forth. So, okay. okay, we've got our characters, so we know who's on both stages. So now the plot of the drama of Esther is to determine who is going to control Ahasuerus. Who is controlling the king? Is he going to listen to Haman or Mordecai? Who is going to be the counselor who carries that weight in the kingdom? And sometimes it's either Mordecai who operates through Esther or Esther who operates through Mordecai or Haman on the other side. Okay. So the same purpose applies on the second stage, our personal stage. Who's going to control your mind, your your physical mind? Is it going to be the flesh, Haman, or the Holy Spirit, Mordecai, working through that new spirit mind, Esther, what, what's called in, in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 5.17, the new creature? So any good drama, Rick, is divided into acts and scenes, and the Book of Esther is no exception. So there's 12 scenes we're going to look at for the purpose of seeing what happened for each of these two stages. And they play, remember, they're playing at the same time. Okay, so it may sound a little bit complicated, but trust me, it's going to open up into a really, really cool story. So the stage or stages are being set. What comes next is truly a unique story to follow. So our Old Testament hero, Esther, will feed our New Testament discipleship. How will that work? You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row. Really easy playlist features. And you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. As with any Bible-related experience, we draw lessons and principles by understanding the thinking, intentions, and actions of those that we observe. It's paramount that we remember Esther and Mordecai 
were always about faithfulness to God. Haman was always about himself, and King Ahasuerus was the key decision maker. So it really kind of centers around this king and who gets to have the greatest influence on the king, which is representative of our human mind. And, and, and folks, think about this in relation to your personal life. Let's go start with the story. The story stage, if you will. Scene one, the curtain rises on the rejection of the first queen of Persia, Queen Vashti. This is taken from Esther chapter one. So Ahasuerus has this great banquet for the representatives of all the provinces of the city of Shushan at the palace. And during the banquet, he commanded his wife, as we all remember from the story, Queen Vashti, that she come and present herself at the banquet. But Vashti refuses and as a result was divorced by the king. So why did she refuse? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, and we assume she just didn't want to be paraded around like a possession in front of drunken men. Um, But this scene really shows us a more central issue. We want to think of this scene as the role of man and woman in a marriage relationship. Now, scene one definitely was not written by the women of the uh, hashtag MeToo movement. We have to remember the strict patriarchal society of the time. It's male-dominated. Women don't have a lot of rights. So you are giving everybody the heads up. You know, this is not going to look like today's society, nor should it look like today's society, because this is ancient history. So the reason for the drama is what we want to touch on here in Esther chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, because this lays out how it happens that Vashti becomes out of favor, and then you've got, you've got the results of that. Go ahead. So in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan, and Memucan was a prince and one of the king's counselors, he said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And Rick, for the record, the king reigned over 127 provinces, including modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, and other countries. So this realm was huge. That's really important to this story. For the queen's conduct, the scripture continues, will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, saying, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she didn't come. So this day, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in that same way to all of the king's princes, and there'll be plenty of contempt and anger. So, Memucan continued, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she." When the king's edict, which will be, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So again, you mentioned the idea of 127 provinces. So this is a vast kingdom in those days, and this this rebelliousness by Queen Vashti was really, really looked down upon. And King Ahasuerus's counsel is. You got to get rid of her because you have to show that you are the man, and that's the way it is. So this is what the real core issue is here. In the society of that day, the woman was to be directed by the husband, and that's 
just the way it was. He was, in the fullest sense, the head of the house. She was, in the fullest sense, part of the body. And what the head said, the body was supposed to do. So we have this this conflict and this very, very direct uh, um, uh, approach to, to, to squash what could what they determined could be a rebellion in the ranks. So Vashti violates the custom of the day. Now, if she'd been allowed to get away with it as the queen of the whole realm, this would pass down to all the wives and be a general woman's rights movement that they feared would spread, at least to the degree of the rule of the household of man and wife. So for this reason, the king listened to the advice of this memucan, recommending Vashti be banished and replaced by a new queen. But Rick, how does this translate into the drama of scene one on your personal stage. Okay, so scene one in our personal stage. So we've got the story. We've got Queen Vashti rebelling and being banished. And, you know, she rebels because you've got this great feast thing going on, and she doesn't, for whatever reason we don't know, doesn't want to be a part of it. So let's. And she wasn't listening, Rick. She wasn't well, listening right, right, to right, the king. Right. So the mind spoke. And and the, or the and the old creature, the old identity, did not follow through. And so, when we look at our own Christian lives, before we were called to God, we had many feast days in our lives. Just like the king, kings are very notorious for having feasts and celebrations and so forth. Happy celebrations and great events. But you know, there's always that one thing that could spoil our happiness. Whenever our mind would tell our body to do something right, something righteous, the flesh had its own way, okay? And the body says, I really don't want to. And it would reject the commandments of the mind. So the king represents the mind and the it's not being followed through. So we find in our lives, we find that the good that we would do, we can't do. The old creature represented by Vashti in our lives would not be confined to the nobler, higher elements that the mind represented by the king would require. And so this is an insurrection, really, of the worst kind. Now, as a result, in our lives, as we are coming toward Christ, we finally come to a place where we recognize the counsel and calling of God. We realize that our life is maybe full of a lot of contradictions, and we're looking for a higher way. And we realize that if we permit this, this insurrection within our own, our own person to continue, our whole life would end up being in a turmoil and simply run uh, as an unfulfilled natural course. And a lot of people, look around you, live unfulfilled natural lives. So we come to this place where we recognize I must find a better self than the self that I am. I've got to do something to change. And so we see the getting rid of Vashti as being that that sense of there's got to be something higher to bring me to a different level. We must come to the place where we divorce ourselves from the old creature and begin looking for a new life. Now, look, Julie, just want to just mention a side note. We're not advocating divorce, <laughs> literally. Oh, no, no, no. This <laughs> okay. is just a picture. <laughs> I know. But I just because you use the word, you don't want anybody saying, well, guess what Rick and Julie said. No, that's not what we said. It's just. Well, we are saying divorce yourself from the old creature. Yes. And, and, and move forward in a different way. So there you have it. Okay. But, um, but you know what? This reminds me, though, of that inner conflict that the Apostle Paul had. And he described that in Romans 7, 14 to 25. And I'll just read verse 19. He famously said, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. You know, he even the, the great apostle Paul 
had this conflict within him. And I think a lot of us, when we start out in Christianity, we, we've seen what the world has to offer and it's, it's, it's really good and we're ensnared by it. But we see that we want to do something different and we do need to divorce that old creature and move forward. So the, the role of Queen Vashti is short in this, in this drama, but it gives us a sense that we walk away from that looking for something new. That's the, that's the point here. So that's really the point of the, the, the first scene in the, our personal, on our personal stage. So let's go to the story stage, back to the story of Queen Esther and all the things that happened. Scene two, which is the selection of Esther as the new queen. And this is taken from Esther, the book of Esther, chapter two. So in this chapter, the king decides to get rid of Vashti as his queen, but he didn't really know who to put in her place. He didn't have anybody in mind because he hadn't planned before that day to get rid of the the old queen. So he holds kind of a Miss Medio Persia contest with all the young women of the realm. And they'd all be brought before the king, and then from that selection, he would choose his new wife. Okay, now, now so, think about this. Just this, this is this is a very one-dimensional thing. Okay, I need to pick a new wife. I'm going to have a Miss Medo Persia contest. Really? I mean, is is that how shallow this is? But you know, let's go with the story. Just say okay. <laughs> well, again, put yourself in that time frame. It's yes. certainly not 2019. Yes. Um, so the king, one of the king's counselors, we talked about him before, Mordecai. Mordecai is a foreigner. He's a Jewish man. And he sends his first cousin named Hadassah into this contest. She's an orphan and he's her guardian. And even though the girls probably didn't have a say in this matter, uh, we can assume that it was still important to them because it would have been, think about it, a great honor to be, you know, married to the king. It's probably the best you could get in that time period. And uh, Josephus wrote that there was about 400 young women who came into this, you know, they were candidates for this. Wow. The king makes arrangements for all these girls to appear at their very best. And being the king, he's got all the money of the realm at his disposal. He had the keeper of his harem give them whatever they wanted. Any cosmetic, any robe, any jewelry, any garment. Oh, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> anything they would need to make them the most beautiful woman to get the king's approval. And so finally, the term, the ter- time comes for Hadassah to go in and present herself before the king. So there's maybe 400 or so other individuals, and everybody is vying to be the one individual that the king notices above and beyond everyone else. So let's go to Esther chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, and then verse 15. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months of oil with myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, we say it's this beauty pageant, if you will. But the women really did have a choice as to how they looked. They could present themselves in the way they thought they would be most beautiful. And Esther doesn't apply that, it seems. She, she takes the the advice of someone else and she stands out above all others 
for reasons that just there's nothing else but but just her natural beauty and and, and I'll make a, another comment in a minute but it's interesting that she ends up being the one who stands out you know she's the only one who said uh no makeup or jewelry please i'll go in just as i am and she was the one who appeared the fairest of all of them and now her name was changed from hadassah which means myrtle tree as a symbol of bitterness or sorrow it was changed to esther meaning star so as a result she wins the contest the king is completely enamored by her she becomes the queen and is crowned to replace vashti and i i think it's kind of interesting that I think there's even more to it than the than the personal beauty. There's the almost the audacity of being able to stand before the king just as you are. And perhaps that was a thing that her beauty was was she was probably stunning, but the audacity to not overdo it and to say here I am, perhaps and I don't know, but perhaps was an attractive thing to the king. Just well, think about it. You've got 399 girls that are poor. Yeah who have probably never worn beautiful clothes or they certainly don't have jewels, they're going to go crazy. And they and have so a they're year probably to be figure very it out. garish and yeah. overdone. And by just by contrast, she's going to be different. Right. And, and that, that's going to teach us some things coming up soon. So on your personal stage, scene two, we want to find our purpose. What's happening on our personal stage? Well, you know, I'm glad I don't have to talk about jewelry and makeup and all of that because that was <laughs> that's your department. Okay, so in our personal stage, in our personal Christian life. When we come to that place in our mind, remember the mind is representative of Ahasuerus the king, where we decide that the old creature, Vashti, is not righteous. We decide we want that new life, that new passion. So now there's opportunities. There's, there's lots of opportunities for a human being. We look around. There's business. There's education. There's the prospect of, of social work, of philosophy, the, the process of being a person who lives a life for whatever pleasure or fulfillment life will bring. In other words, you have open doors in front of you as a human being. And, and as, as Christians, we have those open doors. We really do. But for all of the things that we look at, there's one higher element introduced to us, and that's Esther, as she is, who represents that new spiritual mind. And it's not glitzy, but it's powerful and it's attractive. And, and that is brought to us because the higher influence, Mordecai, who said, you should do this, who represents God's power and influence, puts her in place. So this higher prospect for life stands alone. It stands out. It's entirely different. Um, uh, you know, all of the women were focused on being beautiful. Esther was focused on being herself. And that's the way the new spirit life is in, in, in our lives. It's, it doesn't have to be glitzy. It is genuine. And that's what makes it unique. So we can look at all the other prospects in our lives. And we can look at them dressed up in their very, very best. We look at education. And, of course, we think of ourselves as, as excelling. And then we look at ourselves. Maybe I can be a doctor. We think of ourselves as becoming that great surgeon uh, or, or discovering the cure for some in, incredible disease. And, and we put all of the cosmetics and all of the opportunities that we have. This is what we can do in our minds as we are deciding what is the direction that my life is going to go? But when the Holy Spirit, represented by Mordecai, God's power and influence, presents to us the concept of the new spirit mind, the new creature represented by Esther, it tells it like it is. There's no need for cosmetics, no fancy or expensive clothing. It's just presented as a wonderful, solid, 
genuine higher opportunity, a way of sacrifice that if followed is able to produce Christ-likeness, which is unparalleled in anything else we can do in life. Of all the things that we have looked at, this is the most beautiful because it's the deepest. That's what I want for my life. And, you know, think about it. They had unlimited ability to have these jewels and these cosmetics and these clothing and everything. And that's what we have in the world. Literally, you have an unlimited amount of things that you can do with your life, but you're being called to perhaps sacrifice those things and move higher. So we come to that place where instead of being a myrtle, bitter, we repent and come into a spiritual realm where we're now Esther, a star, something that belongs to God, and we're moving away from earthly things. So now this, this, this story is starting to take shape. We're seeing the story of Esther, and we're seeing how we're moving forward in the decision to be godly uh, in, through Christ Jesus. So now we go to the story stage again, scene three, and that's the exaltation of Haman. Remember, Haman represents your flesh. It's taken from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and that introduces the villain. Boo. <laughs> um, Esther 3, 1, we'll start with. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So Haman becomes the chief counselor of the king. Haman loved his new high position as number two, right under the king, and he required that all men show their recognition and respect of his high position by bowing down to him. So everybody bows except one, and okay. we learn about that one in Esther 3.2. Okay, so when we, before we go to that, though, it gives you a sense of the character of Haman, saying, I'm in this position, everybody needs to recognize me. And then so we go to, uh, so, so we see his character really shining out, and it's really not that good. So go ahead, go to Esther 3.2. Yeah, the business card isn't enough. Yeah. You've got to yeah. actually do the, the bowing. Uh, so Esther 3.2 says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. So what we see from this is Mordecai wouldn't compromise his principles, even if there were consequences. As a result, Haman becomes extremely angry with Mordecai and said, I'm going to take it out on that man and everyone like him. He represents the most stubborn, stubborn, hard-headed person around. He must be a Jew because he didn't know that he was Jewish at this time. So let's rid of him and let's rid of all these people. And so Haman makes plans and casts lots. And you'll find out later this Persian word for lots is Purim. And we'll talk about that. So on a certain day, he's going to get rid of all of Mordecai's people after he seeks the king's permission. So it's pretty interesting that it's, it's almost like the minute he gets power, he creates a plan for destruction for anybody who he feels like is not going to be compliant with his power. It's interesting also that Haman was an Agagite. An Agagite means a person who comes from Agag. That doesn't mean anything to most of us, Julie, so fill us in on that. Well, you know, we went into a lot of detail in part one about what being an Agagite meant, and it's fascinating. So we're going to backtrack roughly a thousand years to see how we get to this point. Haman was a direct descendant of Amalek. Now, Amalek is the grandson of Jacob's brother Esau. Amalek became a tribe, and the Amalekites were known for their love of self and reliance on violence to prove their superiority. So they insisted that God was absent in the world and everything happened by chance. And, you know, this would not have sat well with the Jews because that's not what the Jews believed, obviously. And that's not what the book of Esther teaches. So Agog 
was an Amalekite king. And we read about him in 1 Samuel 15. And that's when Saul was the king of Israel. And he was very specifically told to slay all the Amalekites and even their animals and spare not one of them. So in a triumphant procession, he comes back to the city and after he has destroyed the Amalekites and the prophet of the Lord Samuel says, what's that cattle sound I hear? I thought you were going to kill all the cattle. And so Saul says, well, who wants to do that? They're a nice bounty of war and we're going to sacrifice these to God in due time. And so Samuel says, well, what are those slaves I'm seeing walking by? Those are Amalekites. And the and Saul says, well, those are the very best. And they're the noblest. We can use these. Right here, look, we've got the king, Agog. So it's interesting that Saul just doesn't listen. He just doesn't listen. He goes down his own road, and he lets the king, Agag, live. So now if you um, if you had never had an Agag, you would never had an, an Agagite. And as a result, Samuel sees this, sees that Saul did not follow through, and he goes and he actually has to 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 kill the king himself. So so well, ra- let's wrap this part up. I think not killing the king was a, was an ego thing yeah. because it was boy, I've captured you, and I can show you my power. So Samuel, as you said, the prophet, he ends up killing Agog the next day, but. We don't know for sure, but either in that night that Agog was allowed to live, he either had relations with his wife and she conceived, or somehow his sons were permitted to escape to Egypt. Either way, the lineage did continue, and if Saul had been faithful a thousand years prior, the book of Esther would never have had the plot that developed. You can't have an Agagite and his generational hatred of the Jews. And a a phrase we used in, in part one, complete obedience to God saves later regret. And in this case, the later regret was a thousand years later. But, you know, God has a plan for a reason, and we need to to fulfill all of those things. So let's move on to the uh, personal stage, okay? Okay. So on our personal stage for this scene, the greatest enemy to our discipleship reveals itself. Explain that. Yeah, okay. So here we go. So now, after we give our lives to God, we're faced with an ugly truth. And folks, this happens to all of us. Our human desires are not dead. You know, we have that sense at the beginning like it's going to be all for God. And then we wake up and say, wait a minute. I thought I got rid of the old creature, Vashti. But now our fleshly desires, Haman, grab hold of our affections and tell us, now look, I don't really mind if you're... And this is an internal mind conversation. We say to ourselves... Look, I don't mind if you're a Christian. As long as you pay your dues and homage to me, as long as you give me sufficient vacation time, as long as you give me luxuries of life and make sure I have a nice house to live in a nice car to drive and you reverence me, it'll be fine. You just go ahead and be your nice little Christian. And everybody bows down to this except for God's spirit. Remember, Haman, who represents the power of the spirit and influence of God, doesn't bow down to that thought, uh, his power and influence in our lives. God's spirit says to us, that's not the way you were called to. You, were, you said that you were willing to give all of this up, and, 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 and now you're supposed to be walking in Jesus' footsteps. So now we're faced with a dilemma in our own heads. And this dilemma, in this dilemma, we answer back to God, well, dear Lord, you know, and, and folks, we have this conversation. Your way is so different from mine. I really can't live this kind of life. I, I have to have these things, at least some of them. And we begin to develop thoughts and feelings uh, within the flesh, and, and we try to push that new creature, that, that representation of Esther, the spirit mind, out. We push it aside, 
and it can be subtle. It can begin with the, with the little sins, the little things that come in that we didn't quite get rid of, the Agagites, when we committed to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Yeah, see, our Agagites tell us that we have a better way. We have the better way. And if we'd been really faithful at the beginning and killed Agag, these things wouldn't be coming back up. But because we each left a few of these little Agagites to escape, these are the things that come back and haunt us and begin pressing for honor in our lives. And um, I wanted to reference episode 986 that you and Jonathan did, How Do I Deal with Enticing Temptations, 986. Because in this podcast, you and Jonathan went through very specific steps from James 4, 7 to 10 on how to overcome temptation. And I think one of the things we need to do is identify our agagites. Where are our weak areas? Bring them out into the light and look at how ugly they really are because there's a lot of ways that we can cover them up and justify. We are really good at justifying things. Yeah. You know, you know one of the things about dealing with, with, uh, with enticing temptations is when we get to the, the, the point of things that are really enticing, those things need the letter of the law, not just the spirit of the law. Right. We need to be right on it. When Saul didn't do according to the letter of what God said, there was a consequence that showed up so much later. We have to identify what those agagites are in our lives. And we want to err on the side of caution, yes. even if you're being too cautious. Right. You know, um, and, 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 and maybe it is something that whatever your proclivity is, setting up a little wall and making sure that you're not crossing any boundaries, even if it may look ridiculous. Like we, we've heard of people that won't even, males that won't even get in elevators alone with women on purpose just so that the optics look okay and there's no issue, there's no temptation, there's no anything. Right. And I think we, we really need that help. Well, we do, you know, because we live in a world that really is kind of, a, you know, in, 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 a, in a tough situation. So, you know, we look at this part of the story and we see that there's an internal struggle in our own minds that is reflected in the story of Esther. And so the flesh begins to deviously plot how it can rid itself of these higher spiritual desires. How does Queen Esther show us the way to defeat our greatest enemy, which happens to be ourselves? As we keep this podcast conversation going, this very brief break allows us to tell you more about one of your hosts, Rick. Aside from being a student of the Bible for nearly 50 years, did you know he only drinks decaf coffee? Can you imagine if that detailed, passionate about extensive research in the Bible mind added caffeine to the equation? Jonathan would probably never get a word in. So thank you, Rick, for staying away from caffeine. As a listener, you never have to worry about making your voice heard. We love to answer your questions and respond to your comments at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Let's throw it back to Rick and Jonathan. We do plot and scheme against God's influence in our lives, and it's so easy to justify those schemes. After all, we're still very human, and we do have needs and wants and desires that rightfully belong to us. This is where the battle in each of our minds can easily and carelessly commit us to directions and decisions that are actually not in our best interest. And by looking at it that way and realizing that we can be committed to things that, that will send us down the wrong path in our own minds, this is where the story of Esther really reminds us of what happens and what needs to be done. And it really requires drastic action. So we're going to continue to unfold the story of Esther and then go to our personal stage afterwards, the story stage 
Esther's story stage scene four is Hazuerus's commission. Commission for what? Well, we'll find out. This is from Esther chapter three, verses eight through 15. So Haman's desire, Rick, is to rid the empire of all the Jewish people now because of his anger against Mordecai. And again, he has this um, generational hatred of the Jews anyway. So this is extremely convenient to avenge his family tree. Um, But he doesn't have the power to do it because only the king can sign that decree. So he approaches the king with his proposition. And it's interesting, he pick up on this. He uses two lines of reasoning to try to convince Ahasuerus that this should be done. Okay, and so so let, let's take a look at that in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And notice he doesn't reveal that these are Jews. That's not revealed yet. Well, these people, their laws are different from those of the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. So uh, Haman is is being very very sly and saying this people is just messing up the perfect balance of your kingdom why don't you just get rid of them and then hey life will be so much better and by the way here's some money well and it has errors if you're going to have this unified kingdom you've got to have the same laws for all people right and there's a certain people in the land that have this different god the different laws it just doesn't work to have such a diverse culture among your people and you can't allow this to continue <laughs> so rid yourself of this and besides if that's not enough for you here's a bribe 10,000 pieces of silver for your treasury presumably this money would have come from the murdered jewish people and a little bribery never hurt right so ahazuer says well that's not a bad idea I need a unified kingdom. I'll go along with that. And he uh, he signs the decree to get rid of all the Jews. So it's a classic example of being given a, a, a story that leaves out some very, 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 very key details and is accomplishing a secondary agenda that's not even mentioned. And that's about as deep and dark and devious as you can get. So now, Rick, let's overlay our Christian walk onto that stage and on our personal stage, what's going on on your side? The devious attraction of our own fleshly desires upon our minds. Who, who's arguing? Well, you know, you've got the flesh arguing. The flesh, Haman, begins this counterattack against our design to be spirit-driven. And so when we, in our, in our, in our spiritual lives, we're getting started down the, the road to Christ-likeness, and the flesh doesn't like it because there's things that need to be gotten rid of here. So that that flesh, Haman, presents two arguments. And, and, and it says, look, you know, and, and again, this is that internal conversation in your own head when you start to doubt things. And tell me if this isn't just a little bit familiar. Look, you know you're a hypocrite. Every time you try to be a Christian, you're doing what's not natural to you. Your heart really isn't in it. The law of the Spirit's different from the law of the flesh. And face it, you're earthly. You can't really live a spiritual life. And as a result, it really isn't in your best interest to keep this constant battle going in your mind. Look, better you forget about this spiritual concept. It's it's just too diverse from who you are. It's a, it's a great idea, but... You know, it's too much. Besides, if you do that, (laughs) I've got a little present for you. Remember that business thought you had? You can make a fortune. 
Let's get you, get, get you that home that you wanted. Remember that car? Let's get you that car that you want. You know you can do this. Focusing on material things is so much better. It's so much more sensible. It's so much more natural. Yeah, you know, the spirit thing, not so much. A good idea, but, you know, it just doesn't work. So now your mind acquiesces. It's like, ah, see, I've, I've, my, 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 my physical desires have talked me out of this. I guess you're probably right. You say, you know, I'm, I'm not really qualified to run this race. It's too big for me anyway. That's what discouragement is. In a Christian life, we sign the decree and we say, okay, I really should just be, I should just, just go along with what I'm good at. And Julie, that's a, that's a dastardly place for a Christian to go. It's really sad. And, and these little words are the ones that are, that are just killers. I'm not good enough. Mm. I'm not good enough. And so therefore the Lord is not calling me because I'm not good enough. And I think that's where these, this, 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 the, the flesh really starts playing on your mind and telling you what's the point. There are so many other things that you can do and be. And I think we really need to fight against this. You mentioned discouragement and I, I know I do a lot of commercials for these podcasts with you and Jonathan, but <laughs> episode 924, everyone, episode 924, how do you stand when life gets too heavy? This was a great podcast to get perspective on what the purpose is of our trials and how they can make us stronger Christians. And I think, what do you tell people when they come to you and they're saying, Rick, I'm not good enough to, to, to continue or to be, I can't be as good as you. I can't be on the radio. I can't, I can't do all the things that you do. How do you get people out of discouragement? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really big, big question. But you know, when somebody says, you know, I don't know that I'm, I'm good enough. My immediate response is, you know what? You're not. And neither am I. Because this is a walk of grace. And whenever we get discouraged, we inevitably forget Grace. We inevitably forget that, you know, it's called going before the throne of grace to find help in, in every time of need. It's not called the throne of measurement, the throne of accomplishment. It's the throne wow. of grace because that's what we need because we're not good enough because we're sinful. And it's the grace of God through Christ that helps us to get up again. And that's really the key, Julie, is just encouraging others and myself when you fall down. It's okay to fall down. Just get up, dust yourself off, ask for God's grace, and try again. And when you fall down again, and you will, dust yourself off and get up and say, Dear Lord, I need more of your grace. And little by little, that's how we can climb out. And you know, we're not good enough, but Jesus is. And yes. so if Jesus is covering us and he's representing us as our advocate to the Lord, that's whose goodness we're using in order to get that fight back to God. Right, right. Um, well, fortunately, this is not the end, and there is a hero to this story, so let's go to the story stage, if that's okay. We yep. can continue. Story, story stage five, uh, story stage scene five, I'm sorry, and that's the enlistment of the aid of Esther. So Esther is going to come into this, into, this, into this really serious situation where people are being set up to be annihilated, and let's see how that, that pans out. Esther chapter not four. Esther's now Esther's in the in the palace, remember, so she's totally oblivious to what's happening. And she doesn't even notice that there's been a decree against the Jewish people. And she's gotten into her daily routine of royal living. And so Mordecai puts on this sackcloth sackcloth and ashes and sits right in front of her window wailing. 
And she says, well, this isn't appropriate for my cousin to be carrying on in such a way when I'm queen, queen of the wet realm. He should be happy. And so she's so oblivious that she sends out new clothes for him, thinking maybe his got dirty and he refuses to change those clothes. And then then he begins his argument. And we find that argument in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. So then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you have not attained royalty for a time as this. So, you know, this is powerful because Mordecai set himself in front of her window so she could understand there's something tragic. And you never underestimate the power of a voice with influence. Mordecai commanded respect. Now, he represents the power and influence of God, which should command respect in our daily lives. But, of course, Haman is not done with this thing. Well, you know, Haman isn't the only one with this two-pronged argument. Mordecai here to Esther just said, you know, our God's not weak. He'll deliver the Jews with or without our help. It wouldn't be dependent on Esther. But if she doesn't help, her life is at stake. She's the one Jew who won't be delivered because she and her father's house would be cut off. And besides, he questions, why do you think you became queen in the first place? Maybe that's the very reason the Lord has put you in this position, so you can fight this battle and win this victory for God's people. Wow. And Esther says, I'll think about it <laughs> after this big, this big speech. But, you know, fear of one's life is a big obstacle. She was a girl. She was a young girl. She'd be scared. Right. And, and, and this is so out of the ordinary. This is something that is so, so strange. Like, what do you mean everybody's going to get wiped out? So she takes three days to fast and pray and think it over. And this is true effect of respect for someone else. She hears what he says. She doesn't quite get it. But then she, uh, she, she, she does some deep soul-searching and consideration and prayer to understand what happens. Let's go to Esther 4.16. Go assemble all the Jews, and this is Esther speaking, who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Esther recognized that it, you don't come to the king without his bidding. And she said, well, it's been 30 days since I've seen the king. And that'll be an important element we'll talk about in a little bit. But so that's what we've got. We've got Esther finally deciding she's going to go ahead and go in. So let's overlay that onto your personal stage. Scene five, the life-changing effect of God's power and influence in our lives. So back to the battle in my own mind. So when we come to those places of discouragement that we were previously talking about, we go on blissfully unaware for a while, the way Esther did. We say, okay, we'll get by. You know, every day can't be euphoric. I'm not perfect. And then we live in the world that we have put up. Uh, um, and we, we have to put up with the world. So, you know, we're in it. We've got to put up with it. It's okay. So in short, what we end up doing is we settle. We get comfortable. Yes. It takes the God's influence to show us how desperate we really are. God's spirit presents itself to us with these two arguments, sitting in sackcloth and, 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 and wailing so we get, it gets our attention. God has a plan, and that plan, he calls for a select few to follow in Jesus' footsteps. That's what being a Christian is, to live and to die by the will of God. Through these called-out disciples comes the deliverance for the whole world of mankind. This is going to happen, folks, with or without you. 
If you don't wake up, your spiritual opportunity will cease because you hesitated. It isn't dependent upon you, but you are dependent upon you. And besides, maybe the Lord called you because he wanted you to get up and fight in this really hard time, this special battle, so that you could have a hand in saving others and have a, have a special place in that kingdom because you had overcome in this particular circumstance and area of your life. This is what goes on in our minds, and we have to get a hold of God's direction and override the influence of lethargy and the flesh. So when God's Spirit shows us something so significant— the Esther in us, our new creature, as the scripture says, it listens. It presses itself into action of seeking and following a directive from God. We pray and we consider deeply. So this is what really begins your phase of recovery in the book of Esther and in our own lives. And, you know, we talked about not communicating with the king for 30 days. And we talked a little bit about losing touch with, you know, if 30 days, you don't know what his mood's going to be like. Right, right. You know, you have no idea. You're really going in there blind. Right, right. So what do you think of that as far as our Christian walk? Well, you know, because you have no idea which king you're going to get, are you going to get the benevolent one or are you going to get the uh, the uh, the angry one or the moody one? You know, in our Christian walk, we have to make sure that we come back. And, and it's a, like a maze. The time away from spiritual things brings us to a point of discouragement. And we realize, look, i got to make a stand for God. I can't let it go. If I perish, I perish. And that is that moment that we say, okay, I'm going to take that do-or-die position. I'm going to assert my true calling and discipleship. So this is kind of a dramatic moment that says, got to move forward. So I think that what happens is if we've been away from the Lord for a period of time, we start doubting if God will be able to bring us back in. Right. You know, it's a lesson of the prodigal son where you think, have I gone so far that I'm not worth recovering? Right. And the prodigal I think son. A lot of Christians get to that point where they're. I don't know. Right, and he comes back and says, just let me be a servant because he figures he's gone too far. But right. God's benevolence and grace is bigger. You know, and so we've got to get back to our true north. That's really the the, the practicality uh, of this. So Julie, just quick any quick example on that? Well, we want to trust our Mordecai. Yeah. You know, we have this Mordecai who's the Holy Spirit within us, but we still you know, because of that trust that she had with him, she didn't know what the future held, but she knew who held the future. Yeah. You know, you've heard that saying, yep. and that's kind of where we stand, you know, where there's a point where we don't get to see what's right in front of us, but we know that with God's influence and his power, we have the ability to move forward and we can, we can move on. And so because of the trust that she had of Mordecai, she acted and it became, Hey, if I perish, I perish. And, and that's okay. Either way, it's okay because God's will will progress. So we have to get to a point in our Christian lives where we rely on God's Spirit. Now, sometimes we may not be able to see clearly God's Spirit in our own lives, and that's where you would rely on somebody else who has God's Spirit to help you along. But anyway, Julie, we got to keep moving through this the story stage. Back to the story of Esther, scene 6. Esther's approach. Now, this is after 30 days. She doesn't know what's going to happen to the king, to King Ahasuerus. This is Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Okay, so the setup here is, remember when she first approached the king? No makeup, no fancy clothes, yep. no beautiful jewels. She went in as she was, but now this is about to change. So the scripture says, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, 
She obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it should be given to you. So can you picture this scene? She's she's so apprehensive, and this time she dresses up and puts on her best clothes, these garments of royalty, and she kind of like hangs out by the door and sees if she's going to notice her. And he sees her and says, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a month. What do you want? You can have anything up to half the kingdom. So how do we overlay our personal stage on top of that beautiful scene? Okay, so scene six in our personal stage, the reemergence of the spiritual mind. This is a war that goes on inside your head. And when that new creature, that spirit-begotten mind says, I'm going to claim my royal standing and my justification. It's interesting. She dresses up in her royal garments. And the reason she dresses up at this point, because she is royalty. Those previously, when everybody was in the, in the, in the beauty pageant, those were garments of wannabes. This is mm-hmm. a garment of royalty. It's different. And the spirit and, and, and the new creature, that new spirit mind is royal because it's of God. And I'm going to put on these royal robes in my own mind and say, Lord, you called me, you keep me. Uh, it, it then begins to present itself again, humbly. The spirit, you know, th- that mind humbly and royally presents itself. And soon our mind, the king, Ahasuerus, sees us and thinks, Wow, where have you been? I haven't thought about you for so long. I love spiritual things. And, and, it, and so there's a turning point where there's a recognition because we're now coming together again. And it's like, okay, what do you want? This is good. And so what Esther says in the real story is, well, what I really want to do is invite you to dinner and bring Haman with you. Let's have a banquet. <laughs> you know, this must have puzzled the king that she didn't ask for anything. She just wanted to have dinner. Okay, so our spirit mind says the same thing. What uh, it really wants is our clear, the, the clear personal attention of our physical mind. This battle really does go on in every Christian mind. Stop and think, how are you doing? Now that our attention is focused, what has to be done for the mind of Christ to win the day? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. When God's power is at work in our spiritual mind, it is never hurried and it's never rash. God called us for a reason, and when we do falter, he has a way of showing us not only where we went wrong, but what to do about it as well. Queen Esther clearly illustrates the spiritual thinking as she now turns the tables. And remember, this is that new mind inside of our, of, of our, of our being that is trying to affect and, and direct the old mind, the king, so it can follow along in a Christ-like fashion. So now we're going to go to the story stage, the story of Esther. We're going to go through some scenes relatively quickly here. Scene seven is Esther's first banquet. Because when the king said, hey, what do you want? She says, oh, I want to have dinner. Let's have, let's have a banquet. Esther 5, verses 4 to 14 is where this comes from. Well, let me just sum up. She prepares this royal feast with wine and food. She lays out the fruits. And the king says, well, this is delightful, but I'm sure you want something from me, though. What do you want? And he again says, it's yours up to half the kingdom. 
And she intriguingly says to him, well, I do have a favor to ask. I'd like you to come back for another dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So overlay that on our personal stage, which you've labeled as the humble and persistent application of the spirit mind. So when our spiritual mind begins asserting itself, the mind, the king asks, well, what do you want? Because our spiritual mind is now asserting its influence. And the spirit mind answers, I want to show you something. I want to show you the the prospects that I showed you way back when. I want to lay out in front of you the bounty of the fruit of the Spirit, patience and joy and long-suffering. I I want you to taste those fruits. And when our human mind begins to taste them, it says, wow, this is actually pretty good. But what do you want? So Because... That's our humanity. It's always got that little suspiciousness. And, and, and the spirit mind says, I want you to come taste them again. The spirit mm-hmm. mind, it holds back a little bit. It gives us things in little, little steps. It's time, uh, the, the time is not quite right to reveal the full scope of truth, but because something hasn't yet happened that needs to happen. So we're going to find out what that is as we go forward in the drama. So now let's go to the story stage, scene eight. And this is King Ahasuerus's sleepless night from Esther chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. So now we're between banquet number 1 and banquet number 2 of Esther. And no wonder he couldn't sleep. He's so curious to know what this queen wants. She was smart and she was unpredictable, and that (laughs) made her more desirable. So with insomnia, it sometimes helps to read the most boring thing that you can to try to put you to sleep. And so the king did this as well. He said, read me the history books. (laughs) So they got the king's chronicles out, and as they're reading to him, they read about a time when there was this plot against his life that Mordecai had uncovered. It was like five years earlier. And he said, well, I forgot all about that. What did we do for Mordecai? And the answer was, we didn't do a thing. Well, tomorrow morning, we're going to correct that. So that's what happened in the story. On our personal stage, scene eight, we have this first fruits of the spirit's mind's influence. So the sleepless night of the king, the sleepless night of the mind is kind of the theme here. This is the real turning point in our Christian lives. When the new creature, that new mind, representative uh, by, by Esther, our spirit mind reasserts its ascendancy over our physical mind, we sometimes do spend those sleepless nights. We, we toss and we turn in our lives even, and we wonder and we think and we ask, and, you know, what's expected of me? And we begin to, to review the chronicles of our life. And, and uh, folks, I know you've done this. You kind of look back. And you begin going over it. And you remember when you first heard the call of God. And you remember what it was like. And then you remember how there were were things put in your way that that could have destroyed you because Satan doesn't want us to follow God. And he puts death before not only us but all of mankind. And and God's power and influence intervened. and And we were looking back in the history books of our own life and saying, yeah, I remember that. I remember God's providence. And our human mind thinks, what did I ever do to express gratitude for that spiritual influence, that providence. Again, Mordecai there. Nothing. Well, okay, I'm going to fix that. And then we can rest. And so we've come to a place of really embracing Christian growth in our mind. The battle is now shifting, and we're starting to be more spiritual because we are, we are working through it. But the next morning, something else happens. That brings us back to the story stage, scene nine, and that's Mordecai's exaltation. So the king had said, okay, I'm going to do something about that tomorrow. This is from Esther chapter 6, verses 4 through 14. So let me sum up what happened there. The king wakes up refreshed, and he says, okay, the first order of business, we've got to do something for Mordecai. But what? 
if only I had a good counselor to talk to. And Haman had just come in for approval to have Mordecai personally killed. Remember, he was so upset that he wouldn't bow down to him. So Mordecai, first thing in the morning, is in the king's court. And the king sees him, uh, you know, waiting for him. And he says, okay, bring Haman in. All right, Haman, I got a problem. There's someone in this kingdom I want to honor, but I don't know how to do that properly. What would you suggest? And Haman says, oh, well, I know who you have in mind. Now, if he were humble, Haman would have asked who the king was talking about. Yeah. But pride is blinding. And so, so, so let, let me let me just play Haman for a moment. And, and folks, and, and again, you know, this is going to translate into our personal mind really, really easily. But you know, when it comes to being honored, Haman is like, "Whoa, the king really does want to honor me, and of course, I deserve it." So the king's asking me, "What should I do?" So Haman says, "Okay, oh mighty king, I'll tell you what." Put this man, this mighty man that you want to honor, put him on your own horse and, and put a crown on the horse so everybody knows it's the king's horse and, and give this man that you want to honor, this wonderful man, give him your best robe because I know it's me. Uh, take your most. Because <laughs> I know it's me. Yeah, that's right. Take your most trusted servant and let that servant lead this incredible man, that's me, through the streets of the city and say, hey, everybody, look. This is the man, that's me, that the king loves. This is the man of favor. This is the man that the king honors. I mean, Haman is so all over this. His over ego the top, too. His out of control. And so what does the and king say? the king say? says, <laughs> great idea. You be the servant and do that to Mordecai. And Haman had to do it. Now he was really mad. So... I got the order to kill the Jews, but I'm still not as happy as long as Mordecai is alive. Wow. <laughs> so let's overlay that on your personal stage. Scene nine, the unexpected power of the new mind for righteousness. So remember, you know, you've got this tremendous turn. So when we wake up, both literally and especially figuratively, and we ask ourselves, what would I do if I wanted to be honored? Okay, we, we would look and think about all the things, this is our flesh, that we want to tell others about how good we are. And, and, and you know, we want others to know that we have something to offer because we all have that sense of wanting to be recognized. So, but especially when we're doing good. Yes. You know, now that we've made this turning point, we are now this, we're on this new Christian path. Look at all the good things yeah. that we're doing. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. So, we suggest that to our human mind. You know, our flesh says to our mind, look, you know, if I really wanted to honor myself, I'd, I'd let others know what a good person I am, and the humble mind now follows. See, now well, here's what happens. The human mind now follows the spirit mind and announces, because now I'm all about me, because I'm still not quite there, because, and I, like you said, I'm doing good things, so, but what does the spirit mind say? That's exactly what I want you to do. You tell everybody how good God's power and influence is. You tell everybody what his providence has done for you. Wait, 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 wait. That wasn't the plan. It's supposed to be about me, about how good I am, not about God's power and how, God, how God's power is so good. It's supposed to be me. But when we obey our spiritual mind, our flesh must obey. So the flesh is irritated and downright angry. But now in this stage in our Christian walk, spirituality reigns. And that means we are now changing over and exalting God's spirit and not our own. Okay, so there has to be a change inside of our own hearts and our minds. And you can see the, the battle. And, and folks, we go through this. 
this battle. So, so Julie, let's get to a practical example of this changeover that's so necessary and so important. Well, I, 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 I have a question for you is, you know, I have a lot of people that ask me because they know I work very closely with you. How does Rick do this <laughs> 21 years in? You know, how does he do this week after week after week? And um, I guess let me let me let you answer that question. How do you do this week after week? Because you're obviously very well studied and uh, this is your this is your life. But is it you? Is it just you? No, 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 no. And that and that's how it gets done. And and you know when 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 people ask me that particular question, you know it it's it's a very sensitive question for me because you're right. Th- this this opportunity to to talk about God's word to thousands and thousands of people all over the world is overwhelming in its privilege, but the the work is overwhelming as well. And so for me, I manage it by just looking at one week at a time, and by the grace of God. And those are the two things, Julie, that, that, that help me cope because it's not easy. And so for me, it's what am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do this week? And how does the grace of God deliver me to give me the opportunity to be able to get it done? Now, God does not open doors and just make it easy. The opportunity sometimes goes through tunnels and goes over mountains, and you gotta you gotta shovel the snow away and whatever it is. But it is one week at a time. If I ever look at the big picture, it scares the living daylights out of me because it's like this never-ending thing. But when I look at it one week at a time and just say, "Just for this week, Lord, what? How? How can? How can I rely on Your grace to get my particular responsibilities accomplished?" That's what gets me through. And it's, it's keeping God's grace and his spirit in the front. And, you know, and you look up and it's like 20, almost 21 years later, and God has made the opportunity even bigger. And you didn't even, all you're doing is just trying to do what he put in front of you. So for me, that's the practicality of it. So let's, let's move forward now. The story stage, scene 10. We've picked up the pace on, on you know, going through these scenes. Uh, Esther now is having her second banquet. Esther chapter 7 and chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Well, here's the summary of that. So Esther holds this second banquet, and here's where the drama really takes off. And the king asks, you know, Esther, I I know you want something besides keep inviting me to supper every night. What is it? He finally can't take it anymore. And so Esther, Esther finally responds, and she says, you know, I, I do have a problem. There's somebody out there who's trying to kill me. And he says, but you're the queen. And she says, well, somebody wants to kill me and all my people as well. And he says, who's that wicked person? And she points and says, Haman there, because, you know, it's just the three of them at this banquet. Haman freaks out because this is the last thing that, that he expected and the last thing the king expected. And the king goes outside to cool off. And Haman throws himself at the queen and says, mercy, and the king comes back in at this exact moment, and the optics are bad. Yeah, because he's because like throwing himself <laughs> at the queen. Okay. Yeah, and he said, the king, the king roars, and now you're attacking the queen as well, right in front of me? And the king interprets this wrong and calls for his guards to hang Haman. And his anger knows no bounds. Uh, the death sentence is given in this chapter, and his his sons, Haman's ten sons, are, are their death sentence is given. And it's just, wow, really, really a disaster. So... Now, that's what happened in the, in the real story. Now we've got scene 10 on your personal stage. 
is this the final victory of your new mind over your flesh? Well, it is a victory of the new mind, but it is not a final victory because there never is a final, final, final. There's always more battles. So the first banquet was when the the new creature, the new mind, begins first asserting itself. It sets uh, before us the fruit of the Spirit, remember, in that first banquet. In the second banquet, it begins to show us that we can make progress, that we can attain these fruit of the Spirit. So there's growth, there's maturity. It shows us that we now have wine uh, alongside, beside the fruit. And wine is a symbol of joy. We begin processing the reality of this powerful spiritual prospect and you know remember the king is our mind and Haman is our old creature doing what we know is not right and so it's not enough for us to love righteousness but according to Hebrews 1 9 that quoted from Psalm 45 7 we are not supposed to love righteousness but we are supposed to hate evil right so when our mind is looking at the two of them as old creature new creature we've got to get rid of that old creature and so that this is the stage where we finally know that whatever she wants and she of course is our new creature she can have we can obtain the joys of the lord that are set before us and we ask what are those well what do you want all we really want is to live and 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 who um, who takes the life? It's the new creature, the spiritual mind. So you know that that's the thing, and, and, and you know the old the, the the human mind says, you know, look, I never I never saw it that way. So so just as the king, uh, um, just like the king, we go out, we think it over, we we got to cool off, we got to say, okay, let's put this in perspective. And now the flesh, like Haman, okay, begins begging for itself, and the mind says, that's it. The flesh is always taking advantage of the new mind, the new spiritual mind, that new creature. I'm going to be rid of this flesh once and for all. And we come to that determination, and then we put it away. Now, obviously, we can never thoroughly put it to, to death until we die, but the, the significance in the picture is monumental. We have now given our mind over to the spirit mind. And it's interesting that when this happens, something else happens. And that's where the story continues in Esther 8, 1 to 2. And I'll read that directly. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Okay, so this ends up being one of the... uh most profound passages in the entire book because it reveals to us the place in our lives where we no longer just think about and promise to give up the flesh, Haman, but we actually give it up and we put it aside. And once the flesh is now being destroyed, we truly are given control over to the stewardship of all that the flesh had previously owned. So whatever the flesh was in charge of, we now give over to God's power and God's influence now controls it. So now we are in harmony. God's spirit drives our spirit mind and our humanity, both mind and body, now dutifully follow. So the victory is won, although there are a few scenes left in our drama still. So just when you begin to think it's safe and you can let your guard down, there's always more to do. With Haman gone, how does the king undo the evil of a proclaimed edict that can't be undone? 
Have you seen our CQ Kids videos? They're short, animated, and fun stories that use the Bible to answer actual kid questions. Subjects range from Jesus to prayer and thankfulness to the hard stuff like Satan and dying. They're perfect for starting a Bible discussion at home or a short story before bedtime. They're also an entertaining way to begin a Sunday school lesson. Watch all the inspirational CQ Kids videos. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, what's next, Rick? The story of Esther gives us a true sense of reality. If this were a fictional movie script, the removing of Haman and his diabolical plots and the elevation of Mordecai would have served as a perfect ending. But life does not work that way. There's always more to fight, more to do, and others to save. And so this brings us to the story stage, scene 11. Now, there's only 12 scenes, so we're really starting to wrap this up. Scene 11 is Israel's victory. So now suddenly Israel becomes a part of this because there was this edict that had happened earlier in the story. This is from Esther chapter 8, verse 3, and chapter 9, verse 19. So I'll summarize those. The law of the Medes and Persians if you remember, was this very special law because a law can't be broken, even by the king himself. So without realizing his beloved Esther was Jewish, he had commanded that all the Jews be attacked and killed, and he couldn't change that law, even though he knew the law was wrong. So what he said was, and this was really smart, I'll make another law. And this law says, okay, you can attack the Jews, but they can now defend themselves. Hmm. And that would discourage those who would kill a Jew. And then if the, the edict also went on to say that anything, any of the spoils of the people that were killed, the Jewish people got to keep. So here the people would say, oh, I wasn't counting on them having weapons to fight back. But despite that second degree, people, the decree, sorry, people still tried to harm the Jewish people and gain their property. But they were slaughtered because God blessed the Jews. And there were so many slaughtered, but not enough to get rid of all the enemies in the land that they actually had a second war on a second day. Esther had, had gotten that granted to her. So we still have battles to fight here. And on your personal stage, scene 11, there are still extended battles of our lives and there still, there still could be trouble. Yeah, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. You know, you've got these two decrees, the two, these two edicts, and I think there's a, a special significance there. You can't change what's already happened. You can't change the edict that was put out originally. The king can't change it. But you can adjust the trajectory of what's going to happen on top of it and in spite of it. And that's exactly what the mind did. So, wait, wait, wait. So, so you're saying that... We can't change what we've done in our prior life. Right. Our, our, from this day backwards, we may have done some bad things. Yes. We may have thought bad things, done bad things, said bad things. But yet that doesn't have to influence the rest of our Christian life. We can use that, but yet we have a second edict. And that second edict can change what our future is. And the second, second edict literally says, fight back. Fight back wow. from what your past has done so that you can stand before God. And I think That's it's a profound. beautiful picture of God's providence extending, and, and God's providence does extend very differently in this scene. He didn't give the flesh, Haman, victory over the spirit, Mordecai, but he also is not going to give you 
that new creature, that new mind, represented by Esther, the victory over the extended fleshly desires of the Haman-like unjust decree upon all faithful ones. What God does is provide the weapons with which to fight the evil. So he doesn't just give us victory. He gives us the way to do it, and it takes work. Yeah, so that's just it. So if we're going into battle, as long as we're battling under his spirit, we'll win. And the flesh might say, I don't want to fight someone who is going to fight back. You know, and that's how we put that flesh down because the, the, the flesh is stubborn, but 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 God is stronger. But we have these weapons. It's really interesting because you just don't sit back as a Christian and wait for God to take care of you. Right. You still have to fight these things right. because we're still living in the world. The goal is to not live of the world. Right, right. And And our previous decisions in life could have set us on a path that needs correcting. And God says, fine, work on it. Fight against the darkness inside of your own past and your own uh, your own experiences so you know if we keep our trust in those weapons we find that they are mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds those weapons counter the enemies of god's power and influence the holy spirit and of the new creature that new mind that is within us and those enemies are one by one defeated in the lives of the faithful so you know what in the story of esther there was this unexpected side effect of the battle while many of the enemies of the Jews were slaughtered, something else happened too. And I wanted to read Esther 8.17. It says, In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Isn't that funny? So all of a sudden, some of the people thought it wasn't such a bad idea to convert to Judaism because they couldn't deny God's providence and power. So they saw it and said, okay. And that's inevitably what happens. Now, sometimes we don't necessarily see it this dramatically, but in our lives, in our per, on our personal stage, that's what happens. A Christian example permeates, and it affects different people in different ways, but people notice a difference. So if that is just as important on our personal stage. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, everybody doesn't glorify God now because they see your good works. Some people hate it and will come after you for it. But it glorifies God, and inevitably, in the, in, in the, in the next life, they'll be able to see that. See, all the witnessing that we do and all the words that we preach are good and they're necessary, but they are empty unless they're backed up by true sacrificial Christian living. This is a spiritual victory that is seen and felt by those that we touch. This is really, really important. The greater battle for the people comes later in God's plan, because now, you know, we look at this, the story in relation to God's overall plan, and the uh, outward evidence of God's light putting down its enemies of darkness for all uh, to see will eventually win the day. Not, Not this day, but it will eventually win the day. And when the people see the power of his providence and his will, many in the land will begin to turn from their sins. We can do that on a smaller level now in our lives, but it can happen on a, it will happen on a larger scale, according to God's prophecies. You know, that reminds me of a quote that you have said that, that your Uncle Steve would say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, it's yeah. such a profound thing. All right. So, uh, Julie, let's go to the story stage, scene 12, the final scene. This is the Feast of Purim 
Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 32. Finally, we get to eat. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll sum these up. It's a great day for the Jews now, okay? So these battles are done, their enemies are gone, and they set up this feast of joy and gladness. And this is a feast that will be then commemorated every year thereafter. And this is the Feast of Purim. Remember we said the yep. word Purim in Persian meant lots, and they cast the lots, and they they reversed that from a day of mourning to a day of rejoicing and happiness. And this feast is celebrated in Israel uh, this year. It'll be commemorated on March 20th and the 21st. So we can remember that when when we hit those dates. We'll remember this this podcast. And so if God's spirit through our new mind is gaining control of our flesh, the story is not over unless we have our Feast of Purim. And this feast is like having Ebenezer's. Okay, what, what's an Ebenezer? Well, an Ebenezer is the thing that we do to commemorate, to remember the victories the Lord has given us. And this comes from uh, 1 Samuel seven twelve. Samuel set a stone of remembrance, and he called it an Ebenezer. And he commemorated God's help to the Israelites and their victory over the Philistines. And he said this really important phrase that said, Hitherto has the Lord helped us. And he set that stone down. And it's good for us to set up our Ebenezers because we can recall all those times that the Lord helped us. And it may be verbally counting your blessings or a song we sing over and over again. And it might be a verse of a psalm that we memorized at the time of a trial. It may be sharing that experience with someone in our congregation where we say, hitherto has the Lord helped us. And this reminds me of one of my favorite phrases, all I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. And that's how you walk in the darkness with just this tiny little flashlight. And that's how you can walk with security and safety. So, so go ahead. So our personal stage, scene 12. You know, you said the Feast of Purim, the final outcome of God's spirit working on the new mind. You know, and, and it's having the sense of having fought that battle and overcome by God's grace and by God's spirit, and by applying the new mind to the old mind so our human mind can change. So here, it's here that our personal story can find its conclusion. Only after trauma and faithfulness are we able to celebrate the victories that our Mordecai, our expression of God's power and influence, has taught our Esther, our new mind, to give us in our lives. These are the things that show us how our Esther, new creature, controls our human mind. And that's the battle, folks. That's it. The new mind controlling our human mind. How Mordecai, God's power and influence, the Holy Spirit, does become the chief counselor of the kingdom of our lives. And the laws that the kingdom henceforth are very favorable laws to the Jews first and then to the entire world. So it's a personal victory that is fought by by vying for power and by never giving up on the grace of God and the power and influence of God in our lives. You know, a friend of mine just asked me, um, actually, it's Karina, a CQ volunteer, uh, to respond to the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And this was asked in Genesis eighteen fourteen, and again in Jeremiah thirty two twenty seven. And, you know, of course, the answer is no. But because we have free will with its ability to choose, I think it can be difficult for the Lord to change our stubborn, selfish ways. And I think it's difficult for God to change our hearts, not counting some you know, supernatural intervention, because even after laying out all his goodness and that righteousness trumps sin every time, 
we still fall into temptation and we doubt and we second guess and we fall into a routine without moving forward with purpose and intention to bring him glory. So the whole goal of today is who will control our mind? That's the key. And that's what the story of Esther in this, in this way teaches us. It is about what's happening between my own ears and my physical mind is that mind that inevitably makes the decisions. The spiritual mind has to have such influence over it that the decisions my physical mind makes are going to be a glory to God. And that's a tough, tough battle. And, and Julie, just a side note as we begin to wrap this up. This account is actually a very interesting introduction into what would happen a generation later. Remember in the book of Nehemiah, and we did a two-part series on Nehemiah recently, the book of Nehemiah recounts the events of the Jews finally being able to permit it to go back to Israel and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah sought this decree, the king and the queen are sitting, beside, you know, are sitting on the throne, and, and they say, yes, you can go and, and, and rebuild those walls. The interesting yeah. thing is oh, Esther— Because we don't, we don't know where Queen Esther was at this time. No, but Esther had set a precedent right. for the Jews to be able to take care of themselves. And yeah, so, her influence must have still been there in the kingdom. It is certainly reasonable to assume that her influence was there, and it was important, and Nehemiah was able to not only do this, but he did it with their blessing, and this was King Artaxerxes at the time, and he was able to go do some th- amazing things. He also ran into his Haman, if you will, to someone who was out to get him, but rose above it. And I just you just can't help but think but that Esther's influence was was a major backdrop to Nehemiah's work a generation later. And that really does give us a sense of how important it is for us to realize that our lives can have an influence, not just in our own little circle, but maybe down the road for others. Julie, any quick final comments as we wrap this up? Well, you know, this had been a great example of no matter how many times you look at the Bible, there's always a new gem to uncover. You know, God allowed us to have this book of Esther to reveal so many lessons and reminders and warnings for our own Christian walk. So thank you for asking me to help tell this story because it's been beautiful. Well, folks, you know, this really is a story of victory, a story of heroism in the Old Testament. But it is a story of victory and heroism in your own mind. Don't let the story get away from you and get lost in the details of the Esther story. Focus in on the details of your own mind and the the battle that goes on inside of you and the old mind and the new mind and the flesh and how those things have to come to grips and how God's spirit can be the counselor, the power and influence of God can can guide us and change us and give our new mind the strength to overcome all of the other things so that we can live a life that is a glory to God. For Julian Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today in this very unique perspective on the life of Esther and the Christian walk. Make sure your mind is tuned to God. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program, subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us, 
we'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about, is he who hesitates really lost? Talk to you then.